0: Would y'all stand for the reading of the word? We'll get it after. Promise it's coming. 1430 to 31 when he saw the wind he was afraid and began to sink and cried out Lord Lord save me immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him you have little faith he said why did you doubt this is the word of the Lord you may be seated Lord Jesus Christ Son of God Um, Would your spirit speak in these uh, humble, simple words I've prepared that I've sensed you place on my heart and the heart of some other folks on our team? Um, We know uh, there's something powerful, God, when your spirit kind of breathes and speaks through those things. So those things that are of you, Lord, would they um, resonate? Would they hum in our hearts? And those things that are not, Lord, would they fall away? Holy Spirit, we know when the Word is taught and preached, this has happened from the very beginning, this is like early church stuff, getting up, opening the scriptures, and and expositing it, exegeting it, speaking to it, exhorting. We know that you have just done powerful things, you've encouraged, you've rebuked, you've admonished, you've brought smiles and joy, and you've brought tears and weeping. God, would you make us vulnerable? You raise our expectancy in what you might do through a humble, simple message. Pray all of this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, Amen. Before I jump in uh, to the teaching today, a couple things. Uh, one, uh, we're going to have a, our first heart gathering of the year, for SEEK, during the first SEEK season this Tuesday. This Tuesday will be at Bassett Street, our uh, central offices. Um, we have this great space there, and we're really, especially anybody who stood up last week for like prophetic prayer ministry. Anybody who's in, on like the, we don't have a good name for them yet, do we, Mike? Yet the team spirit um, yeah. prayer team. Uh, we want to especially encourage all of you to be there to come. Uh, it'll be at 7:30 at 12 Bassett Street this Tuesday, and that's the day, right, that we're carving out together to fast and to pray in specific ways. We have our 9 a.m. Tuesday prayer call. Um, if you are unfamiliar, or you're just kind of re-engaging with Sanctuary this time of year, uh, we're in a season called First Seek, season of focused prayer, worship, and fasting. And you can find everything you need to know about that on, at inourtime.co. That's not a typo, .co, inourtime.co. Uh, ways that you can fast. There's prayer prompts that are texted to you if you'd like that. You can sign up for that. It's a place to do that where every weekday morning at around 8 a.m. you get a prayer prompt sent that you can, um, meant to kind of unite us in prayer. Uh, There'll be a second heart gathering that'll be here at the end of First Seek. We may actually turn that into a bit of a day, but to close things out, and that'll be on a Saturday. We've never done that before. We're trying to get everybody out that we can. Saturday at 6 p.m., and we may have a couple different blocks throughout, actually, the day. We're still working this out. For right now, 6 o'clock. Uh, but that even like families uh, who aren't able to come as a whole family could come in shifts and come and worship and close that out. Tomorrow at 11.30 at St. John's Cathedral is our MLK Day prayer walk. Uh, what we're doing is going to Like four or five, depending on the timing, key sites that are all basically within uh, a mile or less walking distance uh, where there has been just history of injustice against the black community like the Snowtown riots or places where there has just been incredible breakthrough, like some of the churches like the Congdon Street Baptist Church. And we want to use those those monuments, the historical things that happened there, share a, a minute as we're huddled around in the cold and then using that as an opportunity to pray. Uh, oftentimes uh, when we look back and we remember what has happened, uh, that becomes like sort of the fuel and fire to to pray and to dream together about what might be. Uh, And so I want to encourage you to come out to that. I think it's going to be really special. I'm going to be leading that. Um, That's not why it's going to be special. just happen to think it's going to be special and I happen to be leading it. Uh, But at 11.30, uh, we'll start that walk. And again, that is right. St. John's Cathedral is an old cathedral right down in North Main. Um, I know on one of the forms, I think it says to meet here, but we're not meeting here. 11.30 a.m. Over at St. John's Cathedral on North Main. And then lastly, I'm going to lift this stand up. So, uh, <sighs> we just stand up <laughs> in the meaning of the word. This has been one of those mornings. Oh, all right, here we go. Thank you, Alice. I'm just going to grab another one. <laughs> Thank you. Today uh, is traditionally a day where we have... Um... I was joking about standing. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Today, man, my name is Andrew. I'm the pastor here at Sanctuary Church. Today, <laughs> we... we Usually take this weekend, as we are today, on Martin Luther King Day, which is tomorrow, to dial in to an invitation from Jesus to be peacemakers. To follow the way of Jesus is to be a peacemaker. I do not need to share, uh, again, what I've shared many times, but if you were to look at, um, and all of these vessels and people I'm going to mention obviously have broken, it's just like all of you but these were seminal figures that much of our culture looks in on and goes, there was something really beautiful, there was some Jesus on display. Gandhi's entire purview of how to engage uh, nonviolently, even though he really wrestled with what it meant to become a Christian, he comments multiple times throughout his life uh, as a Hindu, surely Jesus had to have been a God. You have Dr. King as an obvious example, Dorothy Day, Mother Teresa, we go down the line of people who have been directly influenced um, by the way of Jesus or followers of Jesus. The Civil Rights Movement was, for all intents and purposes, a revival born solely out of the black church, organized solely in the black church. It was a Holy Spirit movement birthed directly out of prayer. This is not like a pastor trying to play fast and loose with history. It's pretty overwhelming actually how much sometimes, sometimes our culture wants to actually lean in with progressive colonization and wipe out faith from the civil rights movement in our nation. I say that with all humility. It it tends to happen I think accidentally because no one wants to touch the fact that everything was God and Jesus centered in this entire movement even if the white church at that moment was being deeply unfaithful to the scriptures or much of the white Southern church. I say that because today is a day that for us in our calendar, sanctuary's calendar, we reping every year to be, we, the, the invitation to be peacemakers. And we hit it in all sorts of different ways. We will hit it in regards to racial injustice. We'll hit it in regards to what it means uh, interpersonally. We've talked years past of what it means to acknowledge the Great One who has made peace with us and what that means for our inner peace. If we're going to be people of action, we need to be people fueled by the Spirit. And today is the first time that this first Seek season has sort of extended through the whole month of January. And it's been, man, it's been so powerful. And so I thought bringing these two themes together, leaning into prayer and worship and the vulnerability that comes with First Seek, the season of fasting, of growing in conscious dependence on God. If all, this, all that language feels like really flowery and churchy, all it means is simply we believe that God's still speaking and God pours out his power on those that are vulnerable and open. That's all that means. Like we actually could be led and empowered by God to walk the way of the kingdom. That's a good thing, right? We have access to that. You may not believe that. You may not have the faith fully for that. But there's a bunch of us that have that faith for that for you. Amen? Come on. So let's start. <laughs> Genesis 18, 20. I figured on Peacemaker Sunday, let's start with the first murder in the Bible. I don't know what that means. Genesis eighteen twenty. Then the Lord said the outcry. Oh, sorry. Let's start a little further back. Genesis 4, 10. When Cain stands accused before God after killing Abel, the Lord says that your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. If you're taking notes, just write the word cries out. We see that in Genesis 18, 20. A little further on in the story. Then the Lord said the outcry, write down outcry, against Sodom and Gomorrah was so great and their sins so grievous We read that in Ezekiel 16, 49, why there was an outcry in verse 49. Now this was the sin of your sister, Sodom. The sister, by the way, this is just referring to a city. It's personified here. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. The reason God gets mad and acts mightily with the first murder of Cain and Abel is because there was like his blood even cried out. There was a cry and an ache of what had happened this was evil and wrong in Sodom and Gomorrah it was primarily that the poor and the needy were not cared for and they're like it's like the ground and the people cried out you have the most pivotal place where we read about the cry and we're going to keep coming back to this one which is in Exodus 2 During this long period, the king of Egypt had died, and the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. I have heard them crying out, the scriptures say. I have indeed seen the misery of my people, God said. I have come down to rescue them, we read in Exodus. I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Even the psalmist speaks of this cry in Psalm thirty four eighteen. The Lord is close to the broken hearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. This is the Lord who is near to the cry. The Hebrew word for this cry, this Hebrew word that comes up in every single one of these sections that I just read is this word zawak. Zawak. And we find it throughout the Bible. It's an expression of pain. It's the sound that we utter when we're wounded. But it's also a a question. It's a question that, that comes out of the pain of a wound that says, Where is the justice? That says, Did anybody see that? Who will come to my rescue? Did anybody hear that? It's a cry that says, am I alone here? The cry, Zawak, is the unique, one uh, theologian said, it's the unique cry of the oppressed. And what I want to draw your attention to today is that God sees and hears this cry in a special way. What is it? About crying out that is cathartic. Maybe it's like the liberation of letting go. Any criers in the room? Anyone had a moment where you're like, I just need a good cry? Anyone said that? Right? Like, I just need a good, I get that way. I want to say like two, three times a year. It's like I either need to throw my like fist through a tree or I need a good cry. good cry is a little less violent. It's that feeling, right, of being at your end. A cry, the ache, this sort of cry is, the, is the, um, the idea that I do not have the strength or power to fix whatever it is. It's I feel the weight of fill in the blank and I realize I can't lift this off of me. I remember the first time, um, I haven't been actually a pastor very long, and um, I remember the first time there was like a real serious tragedy in our church. We planted the church roughly 10-ish years ago, and it was like year two. And something just really, really horrible happened in some folks' lives, and it—I I didn't. I felt so disoriented. It just—it was like, it was overwhelming, and I remember. Um, Like, keeping it together and meeting with the people that this had happened to and putting on my best, like, you know, it's that that thing that sometimes happens to you when you feel like you're going into battle, right? You, like, compartmentalize pretty strongly for the sake of the situation. And I had done this for, like, about six, seven, eight hours straight, phone calls and dealing with different folks. And then I, I get home. And my wife knew, knew what had happened, but hadn't, like, processed with her at all. And I walk into the bedroom and look up at her. And I'm about to open my mouth to begin to process with my new, new wife at the time. We are only married about two years. And I, I, like, I couldn't do it. It was like all of a sudden the release happened. Anyone ever had this happen? And I just turned to the bed and put my face down in the pillows and bawled and heaved. I remember um, when my daughter was born, and again, similar situation. It's like, you're just, I'm like, I'm not allowed to cry, or faint, or be tired, right? All the men said amen. If you've never, yeah, you'll learn this quick. You know, not allowed, not able, not okay, as your wife is doing the most amazing thing in the world. And so I'm just like, amped up, and I'm there, and I'm, like, in, like, service mode, whatever you need, honey, and we had done, like, the Bradley Method, so I was, like, try like, knocking the doula out of the way. I got this. I got this, you know, and um, going, 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 helping, 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 and then I finally, after um, uh, Corey uh, had held the baby for a while on her, on her chest, I got to pick the baby up, and I, I swear to you, no exaggeration, I had a moment of thinking I might drop Harper because I just started to cry. I was like, oh my gosh, right? That just release. Throughout scripture, believers are invited to cry out to God. The cry comes up again and again and again. In preparing for this message, I was shocked by how often you see this word or versions of this word. We read in Psalm 50, verse 15, Call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me, and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things that you do not know. Psalm 34, 17. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them, and he delivers them from their troubles. Psalm 56, 9. Then my enemies will turn back when I call, or again, the word there is cry out for help. But this I will know that God is for me. It's like God is saying, come to me, lean on me. And let me be your strength. Let me show you the way. Let me be your help. When the apostle Peter walks out onto the water and he gets that invitation from Jesus, right, that we just read, Peter was afraid and he began to sink and he cries out saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretches out his hand. And then there's a blind man in Jericho in Luke 18 and he heard that Jesus was passing nearby and he cries out. We have the... The, um, the Greek word for the Hebrew, the, the Greek usage of this Hebrew word, saying, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Now, what does all of this say about God? God's dramatic response, insistent response to the cry, specifically the cry of those who are beaten down and oppressed. It tells us a little bit about his heart or a lot of bit about his heart and his character. There's this pattern that emerges, God hears the cry of the oppressed, hears the cry of the disadvantaged, hears the cry, he remembers those beloved of his heart, those that are bound to him in love, and then he acts to rescue and he acts to deliver them from bondage. And we're far too many in this day and age of the power structures in our world or the lifestyle structures in our world that try to find ways to either exploit or turn a blind eye to people on the edges of society. God gives them special attention. We wanna pay attention to this. I don't know what um, your vision of God is like, but the God of the scriptures, to be clear, is a compassionate father moved by the tears of his kids. And so in this 2022 year with this cheeky vision of being church kids, kids full of faith, earnest and open, leaning into the beauty and wonder of the world, it is the cry of his children that seems to awaken God's response. It's like God saying, please let me. Please let me. My wife cannot help me very much if I'm not willing to cry out and be honest with the pain that I'm feeling in our relationship or with our kids or with something happening at work or something happening in our world or our extended family. My mentors and my friends and my colleagues and those closest to me cannot begin to move toward me in intimacy and connection if I am not willing. And the God of the universe, as we've said over and over, is not willing to power up. He's not willing to barge through the door. He invites us to come. He is a God of love, and love is not going to force itself. He's saying, cry out to me. Trust me. And so we see something about the character of God, and we see the way that he moves towards people. One way we see God moved in these stories, especially that Exodus story, is the righteous anger and powerful action of God. Uh, Pastor author Tim Keller has this great definition of anger, and he says this, it's, quote, love in motion toward a threat to that which you love. Let me say that again. Love in motion toward a threat to that which you love. This is righteous anger that we talk about, we've talked about often over the last couple of years. If we can understand someone's righteous anger, we can understand what they love. In fact, if you understand someone's unrighteous anger, you can understand where their like, loves are even if they're in the wrong place, right? If you have a deep love for selfishness and deep love for pain avoidance and deep love for money and deep love for security, it's gonna show up in what you actually get angry about and annoyed by and anxious by, right? In the case of God, when it's righteous, Well, that anger is going to come and going to reflect that which God actually loves. Our love for that thing or that person will always provoke us to take action to defend it. You tracking with me? Yeah? Yeah. I don't think it's any different when you look at the righteous anger of God. When we see God's anger in scripture, we can trace that anger to understand what he loves and what he cares about and what it is that stirs his passion, pushing God to act or pushing God to intervene or pushing God to respond. It's the cry. His passion reflects both his desire for justice and his commitment to rescuing the helpless. Now even if we move on to the second half of scriptures in the New Testament, these are the stories if you're new to the Bible about Jesus and about the early church, we see this pattern continued. First off, Jesus' name, right? We just talked about this during the Christmas season. He's given two names. One is Emmanuel, which means God with us, and the other is Jesus, Yeshua, which means what? God saves. Right in his name we see an answer to the two basic aches of all of humanity. Am I alone? Am I alone? Can I be rescued and saved? His ear is inclined to those afflicted at the margins of society who cry out, like Bartimaeus in Mark 10, Jesus is moved to anger by the injustice committed by the religious leaders when he storms into the temple in Mark 12, the exploitation in the temple in Matthew 21. He's even disturbed to the point of tears by the power of death. He encounters death, and Jesus what? Weeps. He's moved at Lazarus' grave time after time. He hears the cry and is stirred to passionate action. He moves to redeem and he moves to set things right and then of course we have the apex of the scriptures that we'll celebrate in a moment Christ's ultimate response to the cry of all humanity groaning under the oppressive curse of sin and death he gives his life he moves and gives his life on Calvary on the cross where like a final deliverance from injustice is accomplished we see this through the story of the scriptures. We see this through the arc of the whole Bible. People who are oppressed, in misery, filled with uncertainty, suffering. They cry out, and God hears. It's the same promise that we sing about at Advent. Right? If I draw near, you will draw near. This is from the scriptures. It's like, do we draw near to me? Will you say you need help? Will you, you God, invite me in there. I can't get in there and transform your pretend desires. I think I I, I I don't have like a, a large scriptural basis for this, but um, I, I there's a strong there's an argument to be made that God has a kind of a hard time with apathy and despondency. Now like God can do anything, I know that, but there seems to be like look if you don't have faith, I mean I, I, there's not much going on here. This is why our cry and our gatherings is vulnerability. That's why even if you didn't come up in like a worship charismatic or black church or evangelical like heavy tradition, where you like you raise your hands and you sing the same line 14 times so you can beat it into your head that it's true. That you cry, you go to your knees. Like, this isn't because there's one way to worship is better than another, but there is something about, especially in our particular culture and our particular demographic of much of our church, that's actually really helpful to break things off and, like, open yourself vulnerably to the Lord, whether it's in thanksgiving or it's in tears and the cries. Beginning of salvation the beginning of intimacy with God, the beginning of authority and connection and power, which is what we are talking about during First Seek, is the cry. It is the cry. Many of you know um, I've been a bit obsessed. I don't know if obsessed is the right word. It sounds far too negative. But a little bit... um, just intrigued uh, about this revival that took place 200 years ago in Providence. Uh, it's been said that revival spreads on the embers of testimony. There's something about the stories of what God has done in the past that can stir our faith. And I found a journal that was written uh, to, like to a free will Baptist church gazette in Nova Scotia. During the, yeah, Google Books, man. Don't know who is scanning Baptist gazettes written to a church in Nova Scotia, but it's in there. I just through my like digging around found that there was an account of this revival from an elder of a church that was writing to this gazette. I've noticed that as I read these revival accounts, the cry, the cry, the cry, the cry comes up again and again and again. These massive moves of God. This is a bit of a heavy story, so just kind of prepare yourself for that, but I, I want to read this to you. First one. One young lad, 10 years of age, this is the right in the beginning of this revival starting, he was convicted while others around him were bowing to Christ. He went home, and after a short conversation with his mother, he retired to a room alone. He then, under a deep sense of his brokenness, laid his little head on the sacred book and poured out his soul in prayer for mercy. There the burden of sin was removed, and to use his own language, quote, there God made me happy. This is the heavy part. The other person that is describing some of these first stories in this revival, the other person, this is, by the way, half a mile from here, The other person was the companion of one of our brethren. She had recently buried an infant and was much afflicted at the loss. She had two dear little sons left. The youngest, a lovely little boy, three years old, came a number of times to the protracted meeting with his father. At length, God laid his hand on the beloved one, and in a few days he was pale in death. So this child, a second child, became incredibly sick. The mother overwhelmed in grief and very much unreconciled but the Holy Spirit came in the hour of trial and made her feel more for her sins and the sins of her city than her loss in this deep agony she went into the room alone where the little son slept in death and she bowed beside his cold remains and there wept for sin cast herself at the feet of Christ submitted her child her soul and and her all into the hands of God and thus found peace and joy Thus God made the loss of her child the means of the salvation of her soul and her families Yesterday she followed Christ in the ordinance of baptism That's a bit heavy. There's a lot of things you can unpack in that But there was for her an ache as she sat there and looked at her dying son not only was there the ache for the loss of her son, but the realize of the impact of what the scriptures say of the wages of sin is death. Sin and death and brokenness and illness are not and never have been God's idea. And she sits there and feels the weight of the collective brokenness and then connects her own brokenness, which has nothing on a one-to-one like, level at all to do with her son's death and recognizes some sense of culpability of the rebellion of all of humanity. Lest you think this is a strange, bizarre story from a revival that your pastor dug up one night. Dr. King, one of the prayers that were written down that he gave, that he prayed, was this. Thou eternal God, out of whose absolute power and infinite intelligence the whole universe has come into being, we humbly confess that we have not loved you with our hearts, souls, and minds, and we have not loved our neighbors as Christ loved us. We have all too often lived by our own selfish impulses rather than by the life of sacrificial love as revealed by Christ. We often give in order to receive. We love our friends and we hate our enemies. We go the first mile, but dare not travel the second. We forgive, but dare not forget. And so as we look within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives, note he is including himself in this, as he is a part of like liberating his people here in the United States, is the history of an eternal revolt against you. Let me read that again. We, As we... Look, within ourselves, we are confronted with the appalling fact that the history of our lives is the history of an eternal revolt against you. But thou, O God, have mercy on us. Forgive us for what we could have been but failed to be. Give us the intelligence to know your will. Give us the courage to do your will. Give us the devotion to love your will. That's a good prayer if there ever was one. In the name and spirit of Jesus, we pray Amen. Amen. Dr. King once said to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. The ache, the cry. There is the cry for the injustice and the brokenness that we see in our world and then there is the deep primal cry that in both the story of a mom by like the deathbed on the deathbed of with her son and Dr. King looking out over the systemic injustice and both people go back to me. They recognize their own culpability and they recognize the brokenness in the world around me and begin there. The cry in so many ways is what this first seek season in our church is about. Think of the cry as a posture. Think of it as like an openness, like a, a, a posture of being ready to receive, of drawing near, of bearing your soul, of ruthlessly eliminating all that does not matter. Cry moves us toward God. Crying out to God is an act of desperation and total concentration. It is a fervent expression of faith in God and trust in His goodness and in His power to act on our behalf. There are a couple cries. I have two cries. All is lost, cry. And the everything is the best cry. It's like an on switch and off switch. I don't have like a nice little medium like tear up at a rom-com. It's either all is lost or all is the best. Mostly how I live my life. <laughs> Everyone who knows me is like, mm, okay, it's true. A couple cries you see in the scripture. One, genuine Humility. It's hard for people to become, to admit that they can't solve a problem to overcome an obstacle, but it's true that we need God's help. He delights in, it says, in a broken and a contrite spirit. So, prayer number one, a cry number one, like a genuine humility. Cry number two is an unconditional surrender. When a situation becomes so desperate that only God can deliver you, a cry represents an unconditional surrender. It's like you don't try to bargain with God. You just leave it in your hands. Psalm 66, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. There is the plea for mercy, the recognition that you have jacked everything up. Anybody had a season where you were like, I have jacked everything up. Anyone, I have ruined my marriage. Oh my gosh, I have lost so much trust with these people. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. It's the cry for mercy. And we're told in Lamentations 3, it is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Mercy's new every morning. The cry for mercy unlocks God's movement towards us. There's the cry that is like a faith in God's power and resources. It acknowledges God's ability to do what no one else can do. It's Jesus' power to rescue his disciples when they are out on the water. Lord, we cry out, save us. It's a recognition of God. I need your power. I need your resources. I don't need you to just take the wheel. I need you to take the whole stinking car. You're faithful. You've done it before. Would you do it again? There's the cry of desperation. An admission of one's need for God. The psalmist declares In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out unto my God, and he heard my voice, and my cry came before him, even unto his ears. Church, the cry inaugurates history, kicks things into gear, shakes things up, gets them moving. The cry is the catalyst, the cry is the cause. It's the reason that a new story unfolds. Time after time in these stories, God doesn't just hear the cry, God does something about it. Think about your life for a moment as we end. Let's do a little examine together. What are the moments that have shaped you the most? And if you were to pick just a couple of them, what would they be? Periods of transformation, times when your eyes were opened, Times when decisions you made you knew were going to affect the rest of your life. How many of them came when you reached the end of your rope or when everything seemed to fall apart? Think of times when you were confronted with your powerlessness, when you were ready to admit your life was unmanageable, when there was nothing left to do but cry out. For many people, for me, It was the cry it was the desperation for groups of people in our world it's been the acknowledgement of oppression these were the moments individually and collectively that were the beginning of liberation the cry inaugurates redemptive history in our world but it It inaugurates redemptive history in our heart. Those slaves in Egypt cry out and God hears them and something new happens. Things suddenly aren't how they were. Things begin to change because we are open to the Spirit's leading. So if the cry is so closely woven into God's heart and interaction with his people, we have to learn how to cry out. There's no action that reflects our broken condition more than the cry. It reveals our weakness and our need for deliverance. It's okay to admit you need help. And it's only when we are swallowed by our pride, ego, and a manageable lifestyle that we don't need the cry. When there's moments where we feel we don't need the cry Often it can be because we've built a life that isn't seeking the kingdom, so there is no risk and there is no fear. We're asking the question always, how much can we save? Never asking the question, how much can we give? Whether that's of our money, of our time. We have followed the expected track of our parents and those around us when we know that God had put an invitation on our heart to step out and do something bold for the kingdom. See, oftentimes we go, yeah, I don't need God. It's right, because you've built a whole life in which God is totally unnecessary. It happens all the time. The scriptures talk about it. It's not just the people who are so jacked up. The guy with the drug addiction in the corner, he needs God, not me. I'll give a few bucks to help him. That's the kingdom. No. When we seek first the kingdom, we will find ourselves crying out for, for, their, for the Lord. This is why Dr. King's books are filled and filled and filled with prayers. For all of his brokenness and for all of his sin and for all of his aches, you watched a saint and a follower of God who sought first the kingdom. And it's not just him, the leader. You read elders and friends and accounts and people that you've never heard of in that movement of peacemaking. Prayers, journals, you can find them like easily online, of just cries and cries and cries because they have sought first the kingdom. And when you begin to seek first the Lord, you begin to recognize the brokenness and sin in your own heart, the places where you are unkind and unloving and unjust. And then the cry doesn't become a place of shame. It becomes a place of freedom and joy and liberation. And so we learn to expect when we cry a miracle against all odds. We cling with fervent hope to the ancient truth that God hears it and passionately moves. In our affliction, we remember the words of Jesus, our rescuer, in John 16. Take heart, I have overcome the world. And lastly, not only do we learn, um, not only do we learn to articulate the cry for to God uh, in our own lives. But we need to imitate Jesus in responding to the cries of our world. Followers of Jesus, we have to be attentive to those afflicted by injustice. Whether they're in our immediate circles, like a friend suffering from abuse, someone struggling with trauma or depression, or whether they are part of the greater society, the racially marginalized, the poor and the homeless, the refugee the unborn child, the person on death row. We have to allow our anger to be moved by a rescuing love to draw us near to people who are suffering, just like our Heavenly Father does. This is the story of the communion table. We receive the bread and the cup. We receive the love and sacrifice and freedom and liberation. And then we also find ourselves in scriptures that calls the church the body of Christ. We are invited then as a Eucharist and as a community to break ourselves open and pour ourselves out. And so as we close and as we take a few minutes to reflect, if you didn't receive one of these absolutely just horrible COVID communion things, um, you can raise your hand and one of our folks will bring them out to you. You can peel off that top layer. Just throw your hand up, someone will get to you. And we take the the bread and we remember Jesus' words with his disciples. He says, friends, do this. Eat this and remember of me. This is, in remembrance of me, this is my body broken for you. This It's a picture and a foretaste, a real taste of my rescue. So church, let us eat together. After dinner with his disciples, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Church, let us drink together. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death until he comes. And so I want to invite us in these last few minutes together to stand or to kneel, to raise your hands or to have your hands open in some posture, but to cry out to God. I'll spare you running down the list of everything we just talked about. But where and what kind of cry in this moment? God, I'm full of doubt, I'm full of apathy. Lord, I cry out to you, would you break through? I want to love you, I want that childlike faith again. My family is in turmoil and a mess. Maybe today you come feeling the burden of injustice around you in our world, in our city. God, cry out. Maybe some of us is crying out for the sins of some of the church in this season who have decided to hide their cross under a flag. Whatever it is, let's cry out together. And there'll be folks in the prayer team who will be up front if you want to come and be prayed for, or or even this, and this happened right at the beginning of this season, if you just want to come forward and you just need to repent, like that mother recognizing the sin as she sat beside the bed is that 10-year-old who just recognized, oh man, I am broken and in need of the love and joy of a savior as he put his head down on the Bible. It's the cry of Dr. King and he looked around at all the injustice and he first just saw injustice and oppression in his own heart and his own sin. Maybe there's some things you just need to let go of, like old school, come to the altar, name it. Kneel down, put your hand up and let the band sing over you and sing this song of redemption and restoration. But church, in these last, what, five minutes together, four minutes together, let us lean in to the cry. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Son of God, Have mercy on us sinners. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, made in your image, made good, and declared at the cross, dearly loved children of God. Loved and accepted and known and met right where we are in the glory and beauty of that love and freedom. We then are so released to open ourselves up to the brokenness in our heart and released with joy to open ourselves up to the brokenness in our world and cry out with no guilt with no shame we come before you and we cry out